1: When the Twilight Zone decides to intervene in someone's life it can do that in different ways probably too many to list but there are some common devices sometimes it puts someone in a different time and place like Martin Sloan in walking distance or Booth Templeton in the trouble with Templeton or sometimes our subject might meet a person who influences the course of their life in some way, like Padot, in what you need. But on more than one occasion, we've seen the Twilight Zone put an object exactly where it needs to be. A camera that sees the future, a coin that gives the power to read minds, and one day we'll discover a kind of stopwatch. And tonight we'll find another one of those items from the Twilight Zone. Or rather, our main character will. His name is Fitzgerald Fortune. And he's about to find his own item from the Twilight Zone.
2: How do you do? I am Fitzgerald Fortune. The theatre critic. So what? Isn't rudeness something of a handicap in your line of work? What's that to you, hmm? When I saw the name Treasures Unlimited, I stepped through that door, fully expecting to encounter some sentimental old biddy in an ostrich-plumed hat and a moth-eaten feather boa. Instead, to my sincere delight, I seem to have discovered a misanthrope. What's that? A man who despises people. i got work to do, mister. What are you looking for? I am looking for a present for my wife's birthday. Wrong place, wrong place. Junk shop. Exactly. You see, my wife has the absurd notion that she would like to learn to play the piano. Unfortunately, she hasn't a trace of talent. So, do you happen to have one of those old pianos that plays itself? Got one. Don't know if it works or not. It's old. Splendid. Would you mind showing it to me, please?
1: Quite why our junk shop owner is so rude, I guess we'll never know. It seems like a strange way to run a business. But one would almost think that it was a convenient way of demonstrating the peculiar powers of tonight's most unusual object, a piano. And the fact that it plays itself is not what's unusual about it, that is a mechanical thing. No, this piano seems to have a strange effect on some of the people who hear it play. But who does it affect and why? let's find out in tonight's twilight zone a piano in the house
0: mr fitzgerald fortune theater critic and cynic at large on his way to a birthday party if he knew what is in store for him he probably wouldn't go because before this evening is over that cranky old piano is going to play those piano roll blues with some effects that could happen only in the twilight zone
1: first broadcast on February 16th 1962, written by Earl Hamner Jr. and directed by David Green. I think regular listeners will know what I'm going to say here. I think it's top marks for this Rod Sailing appearance. Fitzgerald Fortune leaves the shop and as he does so, he passes the cash register to his right and we pan across to Rod Sailing casually sitting behind it. You know the wording of the narration itself is quite straightforward it's not given much away but it's the presence of the great man that's really the standout here the way he is so integral to it so top marks from me for that one now this is our second earl hamner episode and we spoke about him quite a bit during the hunt so i won't recap that here but the original title for this episode when he wrote it was won't you play a simple melody. So, as well as our second time Twilight Zone writer, we have a first and only time Twilight Zone director. This time it's the British director David Green. Now, Green started out as a journalist in the Walthamstow Guardian in England, and I have to say that straight from the outset, I'm quite impressed by his work here. Whether the story works or not, we'll get to that but these opening scenes when Fitzgerald Fortune goes into the second-hand store, there's a real flow to the camera work. It doesn't only follow Fortune coming into the shop, but it takes in the surroundings as well, all of these wonderful curiosities that line the walls. So as well as this long, continuously moving shot, at one point we freeze on a round mirror and we see the shopkeeper approaching it. So it's a nice little touch and I think something quite different for a Twilight Zone episode. I do think there's quite a cinematic quality to this one, even though the main location is quite contained. So I'm going to backtrack a little to our pre-narration scene, where Fortune goes into the junk shop and encounters the grumpy shopkeeper. When the shopkeeper loads the roll into the piano and it starts to play, I'm in the mood for love, We see his mood shift from the abrasive and annoyed persona we've just seen to a kind of wistful, romantic one.
3: You must be a man of great personal magnetism to attract a wife so young. I am. Utterly romantic. Youth and wisdom, hand in hand. How I'd love to see the two of you together. What what a picture you must make. And for her birthday, you're giving her the gift of music. How touching! What is the price of the piano? You are taking your young bride out somewhere tonight, hm? Some quiet nook where you can be lost together in the midst of the great world, looking into each other's eyes. How much for the piano? It's worth two hundred and fifty. But since it's for a birthday present, I'll let you have it for two hundred.
1: So it's the shopkeeper himself who loads the roll in, but it's only him who appears to be affected by it. Fortune doesn't seem to be affected at all, he just looks on a little confused. So what are the rules here with this piano? Who is affected by its music? Even in the realms of the fantastic, things need to work within their own reality. They need to have limits or rules within the world they create. So I think this change in mood of the shopkeeper is maybe a little convenient, but I will forgive El Hamner the convenience of the grumpy shopkeeper, because he needs to show early on what the piano does in quite a simple way. And we need to see that before we get to the real story, which is what happens later on in Fortune's house. But when we first watch this episode, on initial viewing, it appears that it's simply a case of the listener being affected by the music that the piano plays. So if it plays a romantic song, the shopkeeper becomes romantic. But later on we find out that's not actually what it is. The music just reveals what's inside the person, the hidden self that they hide away from the world. So initially I thought, well, this shopkeeper is in no way this sweet romantic soul inside. He's just too coarse for that. But I suppose if we think about it, maybe he is a romantic, but one who has been hurt or suffered loss. So he puts up a very abrasive front to shield himself from the world. A front that the music from the piano peels away. So with that in mind, we'll keep track of the effects of the piano as we go along. So where did this idea come from? Because the hidden self is very fertile ground for the Twilight Zone. Now in Stuart Stanyard's book, Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone, he asks Earl Hamner where this story comes from. And Earl Hamner says, I don't remember specifically, but I am a professional writer. And I think of a story, you know, I make my living writing. So I suspect I sat down and said, now I've got to think of another story. There was inspiration for the hunt. I can't recall any specific indication of inspiration for the second one. So unfortunately, Earl Hammond has not given us much on this one. And this is another Twilight Zone where even our main commentators only have slight entries on this story. Martin Grahams Jr. shares a couple of things in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic that we'll get to, but Mark Zichri's entry in the Twilight Zone Companion is very small, and we will get to that in our summing up. So there isn't a great deal of trivia for this one, we'll have to focus more on the story, and what El Hamner is trying to do here. So the piano is delivered to Fortune's house, and now we meet his butler Marvin, who is an old friend from the Twilight Zone.
2: Good evening, sir. You've dusted the piano, I see. Yes, sir. It came an hour ago, sir. Oh, Marvin. Yes, sir. If you're going to wait at the party tonight, do you think you could manage to do something about your face? My face? A party is supposed to be a happy occasion. Do you think you could manage to be a little less miserable than usual? I will do my best, sir.
4: Is that you, Gerald?
2: Yes, Esther
4: hello darling
2: yes sir, i want you to let marvin go what's he done no it's not anything that he's done it's just the way he looks i hate to come home every evening and be confronted by that lugubrious expression of his it's unspeakably depressing look at him looks if like he's gonna burst into tears at any moment surely at least we can have a servant who's cheerful to have around
4: there's no need to hurt his feelings dear
2: He has no feelings, the man's a clod.
1: Marvin is of course played by Cyril Delavante, who was a very prolific British actor, who would happily take parts, big or small, which would also allow him to pursue his other acting interests off screen, like acting on stage or coaching other actors, or being the director in charge of production in the Little Theatre in Houston, Texas. This is his third and penultimate Twilight Zone appearance, haven't seen him before, in A Penny for Your Thoughts and The Silence. And we'll see him again in the future, in Passage on the Lady Anne. But also in Night Gallery, in the story Sins of the Fathers. Now when we first meet Fortune in the opening segment, we don't truly get a measure of him. He's certainly very confident and quite charismatic, but we're not really sure whether this is the confident, charismatic person that you love to be around because they're so magnetic and their personality just seems to attract people. Or is it the confidence that comes with arrogance? He makes a comment about his wife having no talent, but this might just be part of the depreciating banter that married couples will often have between themselves. But when we move on to this scene, we have that question answered for us in his treatment of Marvin, when he tells him to do something about his face. He's clearly quite a nasty man who doesn't really care about how his words will affect others. And after we meet Marvin, we also meet Esther, Fortune's beautiful young wife. Now she's played by Joan Hackett, who would have been in her mid to late 20s by this point, and she started her career as a model but then took acting lessons at Lee Strasberg's acting studio, and went on to become an award-winning stage actor, and of course then going on to television and movies. I don't personally know any of Esther's other work that I can recall, but from reading up on her, it would seem that she was a fiercely independent individual strong woman with a real perfectionist streak, and it's said that this caused some people to perceive her as difficult to work with and perhaps limited her acting choices. She was still pretty early on in her screen career when she took the Twilight Zone role, and she also appeared in several of the other popular shows of the time, things like Dr. Kildare and Combat. I can't identify a signature role as such, but by all accounts she was a very interesting character and I'd love to see her in something a little more expansive. But sadly, she died far too young at the age of 49. But before she did, she reportedly checked herself out of hospital, where she was being treated for cancer, to host a wedding party for Carrie Fisher and Paul Simon. But unfortunately, her condition then deteriorated, and soon after she died in 1983. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, she said, It's not hard to be an actress. It's not even hard to be a good one, if you care about it and you try. The hard part is persuading yourself that the things you do are of any value. And then Martin Grams Jr. says, Hackett was born in New York's Harlem district, second child of an Italian mother and an Irish father. The house they lived in was owned by her mother's family, and the top floor of it was rented out to a family of gypsies. And then she goes on to say, I remember the old grandmother of them. She would sit all day on the curb across the street, smoking her pipe and watching the house. It used to terrify my grandmother. She was sure the old woman was putting the evil eye on all of us. And apparently, Hackett managed to keep a straight face by pretending the actor Barry Morse was one of the old gypsy women of the past who was giving her the evil eye. I do like what she does here in this episode. There are nice little subtle moments with her, like when Fortune is talking to her about the piano and whether she likes it, and she just looks slightly down and says, thank you, Gerald. And we can see that there's no genuine thanks there, but it's the thanks of the abused partner. I don't mean that in the sense that Gerald has even laid a finger on her. That's not quite his style but we are seeing here that he's the kind of man who will exert control in other ways. And Esther's abuse will likely be of the more emotional or controlling and coercive kind. We'll see going forward that she manages this by trying to put on a happy face and saying what she thinks he wants to hear. So I think Joan Hackett does good work here.
4: Are you feeling all right,
2: Marvin? I'm very well, thank you, madam.
4: But you're smiling.
2: Am I? You most certainly are. That's probably because I'm happy, sir. What are you happy about? Everything. I make good money, got a nice place to live, my health, money in the bank. I like my job. But you couldn't possibly. I treat you atrociously. Oh you don't bother me, Mr. Fortune. You tickle me. Sometimes it's all I can do to
3: keep from laughing out loud when you have one of your tantrums. <laughs> I get a great kick of it when you go around flicking the furniture to see if I dusted, or checking
2: the silver to see if it's polished.
1: <laughs> so here we see the powers of the piano again, and let's examine what exactly it's doing here. Fortune is the one who starts the piano go and He's the one who starts to play the music. But unlike the shopkeeper earlier, he himself isn't affected. So the power of the piano can't be dependent on who actually starts it playing. Who switches it on. That's not how it works. Also now we have a third person in the room, Esther. But she isn't affected either. Only Marvin is affected by the happy music. So we're led to understand that Marvin isn't miserable at all. He's actually very happy, but in order to stifle his amusement at Fortune's ways, he has to put on this very miserable looking front. So I think here that Hamlet is writing in quite broad strokes. What's happening here is that he's sacrificing realism in order to really cement to the audience the powers of the piano. We're again meeting a character who, like the shopkeeper, is actually the polar opposite of what's on the outside. Does that really happen in real life, that someone is actually the complete opposite of what they show on the outside? Possibly. But I'm not sure there's actually a really happy person who actually puts a miserable front on all of the time. So, I don't think what we see with Marvin here is a particularly good example of someone's inner self being different to their outer self. Again, it's just a broad stroke to tell us how the piano works. You know, I get it, he's amused by fortune for some reason, but I'm not actually sure it would be that funny on a day to day basis to see him abusing people like this. And I get that he has to stifle it in some way, but I'd imagine that the very neutral pleasant tone of a professional butler would be enough to do that. Because acting so completely miserable all the time would take a huge effort. So whether these broad strokes are a problem for you or not is probably down to personal taste. And like I've said before, I don't need complete day-to-day realism in the Twilight Zone when the point of it is to deliver these fabulistic messages. And I guess the episode is still trying to illustrate to the audience just what exactly this piano is doing. So okay, maybe we'll forgive him this one as well. But seeing this in Marvin does more than just show the audience what the piano does. It also tips Fortune off to what exactly the piano does too.
2: Of course, I've always believed that uh, we have two faces. One that we wear and the other that we keep hidden, but the problem has always been to find some method to make people reveal their hidden faces. Because it helps if you know what particular hidden face you're looking for.
1: So this is the key to understanding exactly what the piano does, and it's also the key to fortune's use of it the piano itself will affect anyone whose hidden face corresponds to the music that is being played. So if you aren't hiding a romantic side, like the shopkeeper, or a happy side, like Marvin, then you can sit and listen to the music without it having any effect on you. But if you are hiding those things, the piano will bring them out. And when fortune discovers this, He realizes that if he has an inkling that someone is hiding some aspect of themselves, then he can choose the appropriate music to bring that out. The piano essentially becomes an extension of his controlling, bullying personality, another weapon he can use to demean or toy with other people.
4: I was a stupid child when I married you. I thought you were a great man. But you aren't. You're just a sadistic fiend. You take pleasure in humiliating me in front of your clever friends. You enjoy hurting me. I've stood your cruelty for six years, and I can't stand it anymore.
2: Are you feeling well, my dear?
4: (laughs) (gasps) I feel better than I felt for years. It's a great relief to tell you what I really think about you. I've kept it bottled up for so long. I thought you needed me. I thought you needed my love, but you don't. You just need someone to bully and to torture when you feel like it. I tried to love you. Heaven knows I did. But I hate you. I hate you!
2: Congratulations, my dear. Magnificent performance. If you've been on stage, Esther, I should have given you superlative reviews.
1: So if we're struggling to maybe absolutely believe the hidden faces of the shopkeeper or Marvin the butler, when Esther's hidden face is revealed, I think we absolutely do believe this one, because it makes complete sense, and that moment of revelation is beautifully performed by Joan Hackett. Fortune bought the piano for Esther's birthday, and she's going to have a party, and our first guest is a handsome young man, Named Gregory Walker. I won't go too much into his encounter with the piano. But it adds an extra layer to the whole situation here. When we find out that there is some sort of relationship between him and Esther. Gregory Walker is played by Don Durant. Who had a relatively short acting career that was more or less a decade long. He does have those television friendly good looks. And actually had his own western show called Johnny Ringo. Now I've watched a little of this show online and I can't help but be reminded a little of Rance McGrew which we spoke about quite recently. One of those very clean early television westerns where everyone's got nice pressed shirts on. But apparently from what I can gather it was actually quite popular but only lasted one season because of some sort of issue with the sponsors. And not only did Don play Johnny Ringo but he also sang the theme tune. Ringo, Johnny Ringo A peace-loving man is Johnny He
0: longs to find him a home To settle down and
4: forget all
0: his past And live a life of his own
4: His own And live a life of his own
3: Ringo, Johnny
1: Ringo His tears were
4: never shown The fastest gun in all the West The quickest ever known he...
1: Coincidentally, the character of Johnny Ringo actually debuted on a television anthology show called Zane Grey Theatre before going to series itself. And the title of that episode of Zane Grey Theatre was The Loner, which is unconnected to, but shares a name with, Rod Sailing's television western starring Lloyd Bridges, which he made after The Twilight Zone ended. And I'll be taking a look at The Loner over on my Patreon show The Fifth Dimension soon. But Don Durant left acting a couple of years after this episode, having become disillusioned with the parts he was being offered and then he became a very successful businessman in property so now it's time for the party to begin and if you look around you can see that it's taken place in the same room that peter fork occupied when he played clemente in the episode the mirror and the next guest to the party is marge who is played by muriel
2: landers
4: gerald Please don't use the piano again tonight. It's not something that you fool with.
2: I'm not fooling with it, my dear. I'm using it with deadly accuracy.
4: Hi, Marvin.
2: Good evening, Miss Maugham. Marge, my dear, do come in.
4: Well, don't just stand there devouring me with your eyes. Kiss me, you fool.
2: Marge, I'm really vexed with you. You promised me the next time I saw you, you'd be as felt as an antelope.
4: I've been on more diets than our caro has horses. But somehow I always manage to get thrown before the finish line. Happy birthday, Esther. Thank you, March. I'm not even speaking to you, handsome. Do you realize it's been months since you've called me? Has somebody else been taking my place?
2: As a matter of fact, yes. We've just been having an illuminating discussion about Greg's new romance.
4: Well, don't tell me her name. Or I just might scratch her eyes out. Worse yet, I might just sit on her.
2: The interesting thing about
1: Marge is that she has this very vivacious and bubbly character, but she will often poke fun at herself and specifically her weight. So we don't necessarily need the piano to get a glimpse of what's going on inside Marge's head. You get the sense that she pokes fun at herself in the belief that she's doing it before others poke fun at her. A kind of defense mechanism and, I think, a very genuine human behavior. We've all met people like Marge who do this, not only because of insecurities about weight. It can be anything in life, really, that others might, unfortunately, poke fun at. So I think there is an element of truth to this
2: character.
4: My name isn't Marge. What
2: is your name? My name is...
4: Tina.
2: Who are you, Tina?
4: I'm a little girl.
2: And what do you like to do?
4: Oh, I love to dance.
2: All right, Tina. Dance for us.
1: I think this one is quite sad. Unlike the others we've seen so far, what Marge reveals isn't a hidden self in terms of a part of herself she keeps secret, but rather her imagined self the self that she imagines to combat the negative feelings that she has about herself.
2: All right, you may stop dancing now, Tina. Tell me, are you always Tina?
4: Not always. What else are you, Marge? Sometimes I pretend that I'm a snowflake. White and tiny and perfectly formed. I float on the air of a pale blue moonlit night. I'm never lonely. Beautiful and slender. Oh, and I'm loved. I see a man with his hand stretched out. I drift down and reach that hand.
1: So despite this bubbly persona that she puts out there that constantly makes jokes at her own expense to make out that she doesn't really care about her weight, she does. So she imagines herself as these dainty light things like a dancer or a snowflake and imagines herself never being lonely and being loved. So this character of Marge is maybe one of those things that doesn't play particularly well in the modern world. You know, she is a woman of a particular stature. Her inner self is longing to be thin, longing for the love of a man. She's clearly very lonely, that kind of thing. So so in this modern world, it might be a bit problematic to show a character like this. Why can a woman of particular size not be happy in herself, not be loved, and why does she need to define herself? by having the love of a man, you know? It's it's a difficult one when we're sort of looking at old television sometimes, and everyone's line on this kind of thing is a bit different as to what's acceptable and so on. So I won't go into it too much, but I guess the effect is that Marge does seem a bit cliche now. But like I said, this topic about art from the past and, Comparing it to the kind of values we, we try and uphold today, that, that's always a quite a difficult topic and always quite heated in some ways. So I won't get into that here, but maybe just point it out a little. While she might be cliche, I do think she's played well by Muriel Landers and in a lot of ways she is quite realistic. Like I said, I think we've probably all met people like Marge several times and it's not necessarily about weight it can be anything that they're insecure about so they make jokes first before anyone else does and they play up to that aspect of themselves that they're insecure about as a kind of defense mechanism and this is a whole new level of cruelty by gerald and if you look at his face he's really relishing that he's revealing this as he said he could earlier he's aimed the piano with deadly accuracy He already knows these things about Marge, he knew them about Gregory and Esther, but he's just never been able to bring them out into the open like this. So under his control, the piano is a weapon and an extension of the bully that he is. So before we get to the finale, let's take a moment to meet Fitzgerald Fortune himself. And he is played by the British actor Barry Morse, who was born in 1918, So would have been in his early 40s at this point. In terms of an acting career, this was an age when you would often see actors who had fought in the war, then had a few other careers, then tried acting. But Barry Morse was an actor's actor through and through, with a lifetime in the industry. And he entered the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts at 15 on a full scholarship, and then went on to London's West End an early television broadcasts by the BBC. Then he moved to Canada in the 1950s and became an actor on radio and television over there. On his IMDb bio, it says that a journalist once calculated that he'd played over 3000 roles on film, television and stage. For my generation in England, I'll always remember him most for being in Space 1999. ...where he played Professor Victor Bergman in the first season. And it was an internationally funded sci-fi show that was popular on British TV... ...but ended after a couple of seasons and it also starred Twilight Zone star Martin Landau. But US audiences may know him most from his work on the TV show The Fugitive... ...in which he played Lieutenant Philip Gerard, the role that Tommy Lee Jones took... In the movie version. And he would often say that he was approached by old ladies in airports. Telling them to leave that nice man Richard Kimball alone. And Morse would also appear in the 80s Twilight Zone. In the episode Dreamy Life." Despicable as his character is. I do really like Barry Morse in this. I think he's got a great charisma and presence. And in those opening scenes when we don't really know who he is. It really could go either way, if he was a better person, with this confidence and presence that he has, you could actually see yourself really liking him, which is of course how he's ended up married to this beautiful young woman, Esther, who was quite taken in by him. And it keeps him going on the social scene, which he probably navigates with a combination of charm and charisma, but also coming from a position of power in his theatre critic career. But sadly, Fortune is not a good person, so we end up enjoying hating him, which is exactly what we need for this episode. So when we get to our finale, Fortune sets up his. He wants the piano to play one more tune.
4: Gerald, don't you think that we've had enough of that piano for tonight? Oh, not
2: quite. Sit down, sit down, everybody. I'm going to call forth the devil. I hardly think we should get a volunteer, but that doesn't matter. Esther, put this on the piano. Now, cheer up, darling. It's only a game.
1: So what was Fortune going for here? It's slightly different in that he gets Esther to put on the music. Now, this might just be because coincidentally he wants to go and pour himself a drink, which is what he does. But instead of sitting down to face the party guests to watch the effect, he sits with them. And he says he wants the music to reveal the devil among them. But Fortune is a clever man. So surely he must know that the biggest devil in the room is himself. Throughout the night he has humiliated people. He has altered his relationships with people. Wielding the power of the piano. In a sense he's left a path of destruction behind him with the wreckage being people's feelings and his relationships with them. So I do wonder if this final piece of music is the finale, his final act of destruction where he reveals himself as the devil and essentially brings the whole room down. And he'd be admonishing this room filled with hangers-on for allowing themselves to be abused by him. Or it could just be that he knows we all have a devil inside of all of us, and he just wanted to bring that out in everyone. We'll never know which one it is because Esther switches the music from Faust to Brahms' lullaby, and the power of the piano now goes to work on Fortune himself.
4: Say something, devil. I'm
1: afraid.
4: What are you afraid of, devil?
2: I'm afraid of the dark.
4: You're not a devil. You're just a poor, frightened
0: kid. That's a secret. Tell us your secret, Jerry.
2: I'm afraid of you all. I'm afraid of people. There's a small, frightened boy, and I've kept him hidden away inside me, and he only likes to hurt people And I can't stop him
0: from
1: doing it. I've had a bit of a strange journey with a piano in the house. And it's quite unusual for a twilight tone to affect me that way. I usually usually pretty much know how I feel about it straight away. At first when I watched it, I didn't really think that much of it. I didn't think it was terrible, but it just never really clicked for me. And it's only through working through it and breaking it down a bit more... That I have come to appreciate it a little bit more. Purely on an aesthetic level. I think the director David Green does a really good job here. Like I said. If you think back. Those walls were used in the Peter Fork episode. The mirror. And I think it's a testament to Green's direction. That if you put the episode side by side. The mirror looks a lot flatter in comparison. David Green. Creates a more interesting space with his use of different angles and close-ups of faces. But on a story level, at first it seemed like the rules of the piano and how it affected people were a bit off. Why did it affect some and not others? But quite simply in the end we see that it'll affect anyone who has that hidden aspect to their personality that fits with the music. So okay, I guess the rules kind of work within themselves. And I do think it's interesting to see a Twilight Zone character find one of Twilight Zone's unusual objects and weaponize it in the way that Fortune does. Being an extension of him and his own inbuilt cruelty rather than a character just finding one of these objects and bumbling around or trying to make money from it. Where you could say it falls down a little is some of the effect of the piano itself. The convenience of the shopkeeper, and in the case of the butler, quite unbelievable. And then we have the very cliched character of Marge. Also, I think the fate of Fortune as well, with the revelation that he's just a scared little boy, is probably, maybe a little predictable. And again, doesn't necessarily ring true. Now, I do genuinely believe that what people project is strongly affected by what is within them. I can believe in a millionaire man-child who lashes out at others, has an inflated ego and a completely distorted view of his own self-worth. But with Fortune, I more get the impression that he was just a rich guy who always had whatever he wanted. Surrounded by yes-men who fed his ego, and he just saw people as property or pawns to be played with. And that seems more believable to me than the scenario of a scared little boy. In his very brief entry on it in the Twilight Zone Companion, Mark Zikri says that the characters are superficial and not at all connected with reality. And he quotes Earl Hamner as saying that he'd never met a critic, but this was his idea of what one would be like. I wouldn't necessarily argue against Mark Zickery's assessment there, because when we break it down, it is very simplistic in its observations on the inner workings of some of these characters. But the episode itself is then raised by good direction, a strong central performance by Barry Morse, and good backup from the supporting cast. Going back to that quote from El Hamner before where he said, he had inspiration for The Hunt, but with this one, he just sat down and wrote it. I think we can really see that. In The Hunt, he brought one of his old stories to The Twilight Zone that he thought would be a good fit. And it was about a place and people that he knew, with themes that were completely from within him and his own experiences. This time, though, it seems to be Hamner trying to engineer a story from scratch into a Twilight Zone mold. And sometimes when that's the case, you can kind of see the joins. So while it does depict a very real thing, that the part of ourselves that we keep hidden, I think it lacks the truth that the Hunt had. He could paint those people as real with a few words because they were very authentic, To the people that he was trying to depict. Whereas here, we have to do more work as the audience to try and find out the truth in these characters. And sometimes we have to fill the gaps ourselves. Rod Sailing at his best, could tell you all you need to know about a person, with a line or two. Whereas Hamner is painting it with more broad strokes. The grumpy man is really romantic, the miserable man is really happy. So as a simple story to illustrate one of life's truths, I don't think it's quite that piece of music to connect with the inner self that it's claiming we all have. But it isn't without some catchy moments that we can hum along to.
2: Don't laugh at me. I'm not laughing, Mr. Fortune.
0: You're not funny anymore. Mr. Fitzgerald Fortune, a man who went searching for concealed persons and found himself in the Twilight Zone.
1: So that is our episode. Bit of a tricky one, that one. I don't particularly like it when there's not much that we can bring from those other sources, the trivia and so on. Because then it just relies on me trying to review it and analyse it. And I, I prefer that to be a bit more of a mix, but... Sometimes you've got to play the hand you're dealt, so I hope you enjoyed it. But now let's hear from you, the listeners, and submit it for your approval. If you're new to the show, and I have had a lot of new subscribers lately then this is where you, the listeners, get to talk about our Twilight Zone episodes. I receive a lot of emails, and if people email me and kind of say, you know, well done for the show, I like the show, I enjoy it, then I thank you for that, and I will reply, but I don't tend to read those out in the show. But if there is, in your email, things about your opinions on Twilight Zone episodes, or maybe some personal Twilight Zone recollections, then... I tend to read most of them out. Not all, because like I said, I do get a lot of emails, but I do like to present a fair selection of them. And one of our regulars is our old friend, Al, and he says, hi Tom, so you're one of those health freaks, are you? Ha, just kidding, couldn't resist. I'm probably not the only one. Well, you are the only one, Al, actually, so. Look, Al, is this because I insulted your Alfred Hitchcock impersonation? If it is, I'm sorry, let's call a truce on that, okay? And he goes on to say, Actually, the sort of point of view that you mentioned is what sticks out for me in the episode, and he's talking about kick the can here. And he goes on, I see it as more than misery-loving company, more than that people should act their age physically. It's also people telling you what grown-ups are supposed to do with their time and life. When I was growing up, I was a huge comic book fan, and I never grew out of it. Now, with all the comic book movies and comic-con and so forth, That doesn't seem so unusual, but it was in the 60s and 70s, and I was battered enough with people telling me to grow up that I ended up concealing that part of me from almost everyone for a very long time. So this episode is important to me in that it tells you to do what you love and not be afraid to look silly, and maybe that will keep you young. But if it doesn't, then that's alright too. And he goes on, I also wanted to comment on the endings of the two versions. I'm not above wondering what will happen next in a show but I find it unnecessary here. This episode is about the magic of summer and childhood. As you pointed out, the kids in the background take on a magical quality as the episode goes on. So where will Charles and the others go after their kick the can game is over? They will remain in the air, playing, calling, shrieking, laughing. They become the magic of childhood. Even Ben realises this when he refers to himself as Benny. Reality need not apply. This is what's so wrong with the Twilight Zone the movie version. I think as soon as one of the players start to worry about where they will spend the night, the magic is lost. Give me the original ending every time. I completely agree with you there Al, that's a very good point. And sometimes someone will write in and be able to kind of crystallise something I was trying to get at with a million words in the podcast with a couple of good sentences, so thank you, Al. And he goes on to say, I wanted to thank you so much for the plug for presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents in this episode. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the support and I got my first iTunes comment, a very positive one. That wasn't you, was it? Well, it wasn't, Al, but I will uh, make sure I do that. So anyone who wants to check out Al's podcast presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, It's now on iTunes, so thank you for your email, as always Al. Okay, I've had another email from someone else who's becoming a regular friend of the show, Fief, and he says, Hello, I must say I enjoy your show so much. It's a great comfort to me in this anxious age. I've worked in American television my whole life and it was the Twilight Zone that made me want to be a writer. Kick the Can is one of my favorite episodes and it brings up an interesting topic. The Twilight Zone writers were mostly young men Sailing, Matheson, Beaumont, Johnson, Hamner, they were all mostly in their 30s, if I'm not mistaken, it's odd how they all dealt so often with the subject of ageing and coming to terms with your life at the end. Nothing in the dark, a stop at Willoughby, night call, and of course kick the can. They seem to show a startling sense of maturity, I wonder why that was, and it's sad to reflect that Sailing and Beaumont actually never lived to see old age. I'm still catching up with your older shows just listen to a most unusual camera i agree it's a slight show but i remember seeing it as a kid and it really impressed me i thought fred clark's performance was delightful and as for everyone falling out of the window defenestration was a very common plot device for the ends of shows in those days not only in the twilight zone perchance to dream anyone but lots of mystery and gangster shows indeed as a child I thought falling out of windows was going to be a much bigger problem in life than it turned out to be. And that is from Thief. Great thoughts there. Thank you, Thief. And Thief mentions being a a television writer his whole life. And you will have seen his work on Cheers, you know, which was the first American comedy show that I remember seeing growing up. and, And remains a classic to this day. I also remember going to see your movie The Fan when I was younger with all my friends, you know, the De Niro movie. So the fact that you enjoy my little show, FIF, and I know you've continued to be a writer with work on television and novels and so on, so the fact that you enjoy my little show is a point of pride for me, so thank you. I've got my window closed here, FIF, so hopefully I won't fall out of it, and I hope yours is tightly closed too. Thanks for writing in. Okay, another old friend of the show, Chris, writes in, and he says, Hi Tom, thanks once again for your excellent podcast. Each episode seems to raise the bar, Far from seeing any fatigue or phoning it in, your podcast seems to be as thoughtful, careful, informative, enjoyable, and even inspirational as ever. I really liked your sharing of the Brandon Shea Metala interview with Mark Zikri. That interview reminded me of all the things I love about The Twilight Zone, and Star Trek for that matter. To hear a successful television writer less than enthusiastic about the ongoing celebration of darker and darker entertainment was more than refreshing. This type of interview was an excellent addition to the podcast oeuvre." I uh, I just put in there, Chris, I absolutely agree. I think Brandon did a wonderful job and I just wanna reiterate my thanks to him for doing that. And he goes on to say, "'Regarding Kick the Can, your episode was excellent. I like how you integrated the film segment into the episode. You made some good points about the pluses and minuses of the film segment versus the original episode. I admit that I view the episode a little differently from you. I don't disagree that the main idea of staying young by acting young is a main theme, but I view this episode as more complex than a one-trick pony. To be fair, Chris, so did I in the end. I think when you remember it, you know, if one thing sticks in our memory about an episode, I think with Kick the Can, for most people, that's going to be it. Um, So exploring the episode was all about that, you know, exploring what else it has to say. So, I think in the end, I did find there was more to it than that, but I'll be interested to hear what your thoughts are. And Chris goes on to say, On one hand, it's connected to the ongoing conversation on mortality, like night call or long distance call or nothing in the dark, or human frailty. It is also connected to the nostalgia for the past, as in walking distance or static. There's also the connection to the curmudgeonly misanthrope personality, a recurring theme in the series, a la The Mind and the Matter, A Piano in the House. The episode connects to the family drama as in Long Distance Call or Young Man's Fancy. I wonder also about the mid 20th century when there was a transition in the United States from multi-generational families being commonplace. See, for instance, Jean Renoir's The Southerners released in 1945, So, sequestering the old folks away, putting them in their own space. Away from youth and birth. Away from their children and grandchildren. As lifespans increased, people became more wealthy in the post-war booming economy and younger families increasingly moved to the suburbs. One implication of this lifestyle change was the growth of the old folks home. I think this episode also speaks to the place of senior citizens in society And it speaks of optimism in humanity and the possibility of change, of renewal, of continued existence. One of the many wonderful things that Twilight Zone does is speak to all people at all stages of life. It really can be viewed as a human drama that applies to all ages at some level. This episode does that for me. Thank you again for hosting an outstanding program. I look forward to many more episodes. And that is from Chris. Thank you, Chris. Some great thoughts on the episode there. And, you know, I agree about the Twilight Zone saying something to all generations. And I guess the beauty of it is as we get older, we hit those spots, you know. So the actual experience of watching the show evolves with us as we evolve. So it's a a wonderful aspect of it. So thank you for that, Chris. Really appreciate you writing in. Okay, another long-time friend of the show, Stephen, writes in and he says, Hi, Tom. Before I comment on the Rance McGrew episode... I'll say how much I enjoyed the interview with Mark Zickrey. When I hear Zickrey's name, it's always in reference to his Twilight Zone companion book. So I had no idea about his notable work in television and screenwriting. Absolutely agree, Stephen. And and I think that's one of the, the great triumphs of Brandon doing that interview, which I mentioned because he knew about all these things that I didn't. So like I said when I presented that interview... Uh, He was able to engage with Zichri on that level, where Adam had been much more sort of Twilight Zone focused, so Brandon was able to bring all of these aspects to the interview, which I think was really cool. And Stephen goes on to say, Regarding Rance McGrew, I think it is one of the dogs of the Twilight Zone. At first the story looks like it's going to be about a vain, insufferable actor, but it's obvious that McGrew has no talent, so how can he be a star, and why does the studio put up with him? Physically, McGrew doesn't resemble any of the Western stars of the time, such as John Wayne. When the real Jesse James shows up, it changes to a story about shaming McGrew as a coward, before finally setting on being an appeal for more honesty and realism in Westerns. I think the way, not that I'm going to spend a huge amount of time defending Rance McGrew, I mean my review of it was pretty negative too, so I'm not disagreeing with your overall assessment of it. But the only thing I can assume about how he got to where he was in the first place is that maybe at one point he was that kind of hardworking actor. He's got into a successful show and maybe that's ruined him. You know, he has then started to believe the hype and become this prima donna. You know, it's possible and it's probably not worth putting that much thought into it. As far as him not resembling any of the western stars of the time... I agree that he doesn't look like your John Waynes and so on, but I think that was kind of the point in that he was more like a lot of the television Western heroes. The episode we've just talked about has one of those Western stars in it, Don Durant. He wasn't really a movie star, but I think he was more in the mould of the kind of show Rance McGrew was poking fun at when Don Durant played Johnny Ringo. And... I'm not well versed in that show, I, I don't think it's really for me, but, but I've watched some of it from research and the piano in the house, and while it's certainly not a farce like like Rance McGrew was, I think it is the kind of television western that Sailing was trying to poke fun at, where they don't look like the John Waynes and so on, and they just tend to be these regular guys with shiny teeth and a well-pressed suit that probably wouldn't last five minutes in the Old West, and I, and I think that's what Rance McGrew is. He's more in line with the Johnny Ringos than the Johnny Waynes. And Stephen goes on to say about Jesse James' appearance in the episode, Of all the figures in Western law Sailing could have resurrected to teach moral lessons today, why did he choose a notoriously brutal criminal like Jesse James? Even as comedy, it doesn't make sense. Fair point. You mentioned that your favourite western movie is The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, but that movie doesn't hold a candle to Once Upon a Time in the West. I'm curious why you prefer it. Once Upon a Time in the West has a Twilight Zone kind of feel and twist. Henry Fonda's character is Evil Incarnate, making Lee Van Cleef's character look like a choir boy. And then there is Claudia Cardinal. Regards, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. Well... There's a couple of things I'd say on that. I mean, first of all, I think favourite movies are usually favourite movies for a reason. And I think a person's favourite movie will not necessarily be the movie that they think is the best movie. There's a lot of reasons why films resonate with people. So, you know, I might think a movie is one of my favourites, but actually think, well, a different movie is a better movie but it just doesn't resonate with me in the same way. So it's not a favorite in the same way. So there is that. But the one thing I would disagree on is that you mentioned that the good, the bad and the ugly doesn't hold a candle to once upon a time in the West, which sort of suggests that there's a big disparity between them, suggests to me a really big difference. And I don't think there is. I think both of them are unique in their own way and both of them are great in their own way. And I wouldn't really put that big a divide between them. I don't think Once Upon a Time in the West is a better movie. I think there are things it does better. But then I think there are things that The Good and the Bad and the Ugly do better. I think they complement each other rather than me trying to put them up there in some sort of comparison. I mean if we really came down to it then there's things like... I would take Clint Eastwood over Charles Bronson. And I do love Charles Bronson but... I think that the sort of intensity of Clint Eastwood at that time is uh, preferable to me than Bronson, who is actually quite blank in the role. Um, And Henry Fonda versus Lee Van Cleef, you know, I think Henry Fonda is great. And there's some wonderful stories about how everyone doubted his casting, you know, they didn't think the lovely Henry Fonda was was suitable for this despicable role but then he comes on the set and he just blows everyone away he had that sort of deathly icy look behind his eyes completely cold and I think that's wonderful but that doesn't mean that Lee Van Cleef wasn't the right person for the role he played in the good the bad and the ugly you know he was and he fitted in with that trio of actors and Henry Fonda undoubtedly is a better actor than Lee Van Cleef, but I think Lee Van Cleef has that wonderful exploitation movie quality to him. He seems more part of that dirty world than Henry Fonda ever did. So there's, there's all these pros and cons. I mean, we could go on and you could probably counter with, but I think this. But for me... I don't really put them in competition, I think they're both great for their own reasons, so... So it's an interesting discussion, but I've really no interest in kind of pitting them against each other. But uh, thanks for writing in, Stephen, as always. Okay, and a final email from our friend Kevin, and he says, Hi Tom, just a couple of personal stories, I grew up in Maryland just outside DC. At age 19 I took off on my own and moved to Alaska. This was 1981 and my first permanent job was a clerk in a liquor store that was next to a convenience store in Eagle River, Alaska. One evening the clerk from the store next door came out to talk in the chilly night air. He was maybe a year or two older and wanted to be a writer. He had just got off the phone with Stephen King, the writer. It was not the first time they talked. How did you get his number? I asked. He's listed in the phone book, I was told. I don't know if the guy ever got published, but he had enthusiasm. I was in Alaska till 1989, then moved back to Maryland and Virginia. Now I've lived in Maine since 1997, and consider King somewhat of a neighbour, and wanted to send him a note thanking him for being accessible to the struggling writer all those years ago. I went on StephenKing.com and realised how different and difficult it would be to reach him. It is very much a commercialised site for the brand of King. Times change. As I said I moved to Maine in 1997, I worked for National Geographic and along with hundreds of people got plenty of notice we would be downsized and outsourced. That summer before actually moving, using severance package money, I took a bicycle tour of the East Coast logging 5300 miles. Wow impressive. Near the end of my journey, somewhere in Connecticut I believe, I was in a convenience store and noticed the front page news of Lady Di killed in a horrible car wreck in France. This was a newspaper like National Enquirer, known for crazy stories. I asked the clerk if it was true, and was shocked to find it was. This part of my trip I was biking a 100 mile consecutive days, and out of touch with news. It was a different time. I had no radio, no cell phone, no GPS... No smartphone or internet. So Tom, I felt I needed to relate two brief moments. Brushes with icons from our two continents. Just know that what you create with your podcast may well be seminal. Marking a point imprinted in memory. Never leaving in a future very different from today. Thanks in advance from those unknown, unseen, unheard. Cheers, Kevin in Maine, Twilight Zone podcast fan. Well thank you Kevin, you know I was actually on your continent when that happened, when Lady Diana was killed. I was working in New York so we weren't that far from each other at the time, but kind of on a completely unrelated note, I I think your trip sounds wonderful, you know, no radio, no cell phone, no GPS, no smartphone or internet. I'm kind of starting to be of the opinion that we are a bit too plugged in these days, so kind of removing all those things sounds like heaven. But thank you for your kind words on the show. You know, marking a point imprinted in memory that maybe people in a, in a world different from what we have now in the, in the future will, will come to appreciate. You know, that would be a nice thought that this will stay and last for some people and, and I hope that to be the case. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate that. So that is our episode of the Twilight Zone podcast. If you want to get your thoughts onto the show, then email Tom at the Podcast.com. If you want to check us out on Facebook it is facebook.com/ Twilight Zone podcast and on Twitter it's Twilight Zone net. If you want to support the show on patreon then go to patreon.com/ Twilight Zone podcast And with the whole Patreon thing you know I've evolved the content over time. I think in the beginning I didn't want to steer too close to the Twilight Zone, in case it sort of crossed over with this one too much, but these days I I think I've found where the line is, so the content is actually scanning more with Twilight Zone stuff. So for a $1 a month donation, you get an extra show called The Fifth Dimension, and what that used to be was me reading short stories from around the time of the Twilight Zone, and it still will be sometimes, but I've actually change it up a bit now that it actually is going to feature interesting twilight zone things from around the web that i find but also i'm going to be looking at sailing's other work in probably a more conversational format so things like his series the loner things like patterns you know all this other work that he did Uh, so that's going to be on the fifth dimension and you can get that for just one dollar a month for two dollars a month you can get the fifth dimension but you also get a show called Twilight Zone Aftermath every month, where I look at the 80s Twilight Zone and then down the line, the 2000s Twilight Zone. So for the $2 a month donation, you get those two shows. And then the final tier for $3 a month, you get a bi-monthly show, which is a spin-off of my horror podcast, The Strange and Deadly Show. And that's called Strange and Deadly's Television Terror. And every other month, we look at an episode of Night Gallery, and we look at an episode of Tales from the Crypt. So for a $3 a month donation, you get those first two shows monthly, and then a bi-monthly episode of Strange and Deadly's Television Terror. So that's enough from me. I just want to thank iTunes reviewers, PC Weenies Cartoonist, and Hinge Thunder for putting up new iTunes reviews. You know, that's always something... I really appreciate and while I do things like Patreon this support matters too you know people just taking a couple of minutes to put a review on iTunes really does make a difference and it does mean a lot so thank you to PC Weenies Cartoonist and Hinge Thunder and thanks to new Patreon supporters and as I've mentioned before when I get a new Patreon supporter I kind of make them sponsor of an episode of the Twilight Zone podcast so welcome to Jacob Stewart, who is the executive producer of Kick the Can, Bryce Pegelow, who is executive producer of Mirror Image, and James Ervin, who is executive producer of A Nice Place to Visit. So that's enough from me this week, and let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what's
0: next. And now, Mr Serling. A symbol of a sad but rather commonplace event. An impressive funeral, the deceased laid out in the most acceptable manner. But in this case, at the last moment, deciding that in matters concerning the trip to the great beyond, perhaps this trip wasn't necessary. You'll see it next week on The Twilight Zone when we present Montgomery Pittman's The Last Rites of Jeff Myrtlebank.